Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute in Oakland, California. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. Today, we're talking about preventing gun violence. Hardly a day goes by that we don't hear about some kind of tragedy related to gun violence. And that doesn't even include the daily gun violence that people have to live with in some parts of this country. I'm joined by my Prevention Institute colleagues, Lisa Fujie-Parks and Alicia Somji, to talk about how we can prevent gun violence rather than just waiting for the next tragedy to happen. Welcome, Lisa and Alicia. Thank you, Andrea. And, you know, I just want to acknowledge that when we really sit with the magnitude of this issue and the harm and suffering, it can be really heartbreaking and difficult. And I'm really glad that we're here to have this conversation. So am I. I'd like to start out talking about what it means to take a public health approach to preventing gun violence. That's something we talk a lot about at Prevention Institute, but I'm not sure, Alicia, that everyone knows what we mean by it. We like to get to the root of the problem. And that means thinking about our community environments and what's contributing to gun violence in communities and what's protective against that. We bring together community members with different sectors and like to develop solutions together, both policies and practices. Then once we develop our policy or practice solutions, we then evaluate them because public health is really a learning field. We like to learn from what works and what doesn't work and really build the evidence for that. And just to make sure people really understand, can you talk about maybe another public health issue and how this approach was applied to that issue? Yeah, I think smoking is a really good example, one you hear a lot about in public health, because it was it was the norm in, in our communities that people smoked everywhere, inside, in hospitals. We saw doctors smoking. And now you would never see that. And that really took people looking at the data, people coming up with solutions. And it wasn't just one policy or one program that was implemented. It was really a multitude of different strategies and policies. And now we're at a place where it's not the default. And seeing someone smoking, people understand the hazards that are involved with that. So we really did see a norms change in, in smoking. So with looking at smoking as a public health issue, the field also had to deal with the tobacco industry really pushing its products and marketing cigarettes to community members, and that really affect the norms in our communities. And just as the tobacco industry was placing a lot of pressure when smoking was very prevalent, we're seeing a similar situation right now with guns in the gun industry. I wanted to share smoking as an example because I think there's a lot of parallels even with industry and interests. Lisa, I've heard you say that there's been a lot of research done into what's effective in reducing gun violence. Can you talk about that? What do we know works? Yeah, the research base has grown, which has helped quite a bit to make the case for taking a public health approach. So Alicia mentioned risk and protective factors. We know a lot more about what conditions increase the likelihood of guns being used for violence and what conditions decrease the likelihood of that happening. We also know that violence with the use of gun is very related to other forms of violence. 
and share common risk and protective factors, and that there are a number of interventions that have been shown to be effective for reducing gun violence as well as other types of violence. One of the things that we have really learned and that's been reinforced again and again is the need for multiple sectors to be involved. And in fact, cities that have cross-sector coordination of their efforts have lower rates of violence overall. And so there are interventions that parks and recreations programs can implement, schools can implement, hospitals can implement, economic development agencies can implement, all with an evidence base of what's effective. And then there are some very specific policies that have also been shown to reduce the likelihood of gun violence. And there are a set of policies that are specifically designed to reduce easy access to dangerous weapons. And these are policies like banning high-capacity magazines and bump stocks and requiring universal background checks without loopholes. Lisa, you mentioned that there are some conditions that can either increase the risk of gun violence or decrease the risk. Can one of you talk about what some of those conditions might be? I can take this one. Looking at the research for multiple forms of violence, we see things like economic opportunities in communities or alcohol outlet density, which has to do with the number of alcohol establishments in a particular area, like the number of them. Uh, even things like social connections. When people are facing isolation, rates of violence can increase. So those are the types of things we're talking about when we say risk factors. And I'll add that I think when we look across countries, it becomes very apparent that easy access to dangerous weapons increases the likelihood of guns being used for violence. So there are the factors that are common in a lot of situations, and then there are factors that are specific to different communities. The good news is that more and more communities are using this information about what we know works as they're creating violence prevention policies and programs. Alicia, can you talk about what some communities are doing? Yeah, and I think it's important to note here that in the absence of federal and state level policies, it's really important for communities to see that they have a role to play and that there are things that can happen at a more community level. One example I wanted to share is King County in Washington has an effort called Lock It Up. And through this, they're promoting safe storage. So educating on the different types of options for safe storage, making sure people know that this is an option. And they're even at times providing discounts for safe storage options. In the state, lockboxes are tax exempt. They're also promoting that through their work and thinking more about how what, what they can do at that local level in terms of safe storage, which can help prevent things like children accessing guns. Another thing I wanted to share is in Richmond, California, there is a group called Advance Peace, and they focus on interrupting gun violence in urban communities by providing opportunities to men who have been involved in lethal firearm offenses. They'll do things like daily check-ins, offer things like social service navigation, internships, They'll do elder circles. And by offering these types of opportunities, um, they've actually experienced a 66% decrease in firearm assaults, causing injury or death between the years of 2010 and 2017. Things can happen at this community level. 
Another example, Brady Campaign, which is a national organization, they've really been promoting this idea of stopping bad apple gun dealers. They often share that 5% of bad apple gun dealers are responsible for nearly 90% of guns used in crime across the country. So let me repeat that. 5% of gun dealers are responsible for 90% of guns used in crime in this country. They're using social pressure, offering a responsible dealer code of conduct, and focusing on legal action to close down those bad apple gun dealers. And then thinking more about some of those risk and protective factors we brought up earlier, there's also work happening such as restoring vacant lots, focusing on beautification of neighborhoods and improving the look, feel, and safety of a community that way, or having things like safe park events and bringing community together in parks and having lighting until late so that people can come together and have a space to interact. We've also seen in the absence of policy, a lot of organizations take action to create organizational practices. So for example, FedEx stopped providing discounts to NRA members just today as we're recording this. Dick's Sporting Goods stopped selling assault-style weapons after the Parkland shooting. Walmart increased the age requirement for purchasing guns. So there are actions that we can be taking. Health departments can do things like King County that I explained, or corporations can be doing things. It's not just about federal policy. And I know there are also examples of cities where the entire city is bringing together a community-wide violence prevention plan. Lisa, you've worked with some of those cities. What is that about? Yeah, this has been really exciting work that we have had the honor and privilege to work with a number of different cities. And cities can come together across government and community and philanthropy and faith community and multiple sectors to create a comprehensive plan. And it may come as a surprise. It may not come as a surprise. But many cities do not have a strategy, a coordinated approach for how they are dealing with the issue of violence. And so cities that have been able to develop a strategic plan and implement those kinds of plans have actually achieved a lot of success in reducing rates of violence. I will say that a plan is really about the people coming together to take action. And it's about building a movement that is committed to peace and to saving lives and to being willing to act in a coordinated way toward the vision of communities that are safe and free from violence. So they're really about the people who craft them and come together and make them happen. And the city of Milwaukee is a great example where they are building a movement for peace that is guided by a plan called the Blueprint for Peace. Another city that's been an inspiration for a number of years is the city of Minneapolis. They were one of the first cities to develop a strategic plan, also called the Blueprint to Prevent Youth Violence. They have achieved some really impressive reductions. For example, over a three-year period, they were able to reduce the number of youth gunshot victims by 62%. And they were also able to reduce the number of young people arrested with a gun by 76%. During that same time, 
They quadrupled the number of paid internships available to young people. And this approach of increasing the amount of positive opportunity for young people was a really big part of their strategy. Everything from positive after-school opportunities to economic opportunities for young people. This was a really big core commitment that the city of Minneapolis made as they were working to reduce violence affecting young people. Those are some really exciting results. And I know that you incorporated what you know about these as you're both working on Prevention Institute's recommendations for preventing gun violence. Those are being used by advocates around the country as they look at what they can do in their city or town to prevent and reduce gun violence. Lisa, can you tell us about those recommendations and also why they include some areas that people might not expect to see in a list of gun violence prevention recommendations? Yes. So the recommendations are organized into four categories. We start with addressing the imminent risk of gun violence. Then we include a number of recommendations that address underlying risk and resilience factors. The third category really addresses the infrastructure that's needed to implement these kinds of strategies. And the fourth category includes recommendations that we call new frontiers. I want to talk about the third category of infrastructure because that's an area that many people might not think about um, in terms of reducing gun violence. So these are things like ensuring that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have the resources to study the issue and provide science-based guidance on the issue of gun violence. It also includes the need to invest in a multi-sector system that can continue to look at the data, implement multiple strategies, and track the success of these efforts over time. It really does take the investment in this type of a system to really have the results that we want to see. And Alicia, what is the New Frontiers section about? So in public health, we really are um, focused on learning and research changes, new evidence comes about. And so this area is focused on areas that are emerging and we'd like to explore further, whether it's through research or practice. So one example is mental health and well-being. Often in the news, especially when we hear about mass shootings, we hear a lot about, oh, mental illness. And mental illness isn't actually at the root of this country's high rate of gun violence. And contrary to popular belief, people with mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. But at Prevention Institute, we think that there is more that we can be doing to foster mental health and well-being in the first place. We actually have a national initiative called Making Connections, which is all about mental health and well-being among men and boys. It's focused on men and boys of color as well as veterans. We're really interested in learning more about community approaches to mental health. So that's one area that's in the New Frontiers section. Another area that I'm passionate about is the economic development aspect. So we've brought that up a little bit already today, but there's a quote I wanted to share by Reverend Gregory Boyle in East Los Angeles. He says, nothing stops a bullet like a job. We would really like to see more dialogue and action around gun violence prevention through economic opportunities, especially 
for youth. And we've already seen some examples of success in this, like the Minneapolis one that Lisa shared. There's also a study of One Summer Chicago Plus um, shows that economic opportunities, youth employment can help decrease violence. What they did is they prepared youth from some of the city's most violent neighborhoods for the labor market. And through these efforts, they saw a 43% drop in violent crime arrests for those participants. That's an area that we'd really like to explore further. And the last one I wanted to mention is around healthy norms around masculinity. While the majority of men aren't violent, don't perpetrate gun violence, we do know that the majority of people who do use guns against others and themselves are boys and men. And so we'd really like to unpack those pathways between gun violence and things like power and privilege and see what more comes out of that in the research space and then look at what can actually happen in terms of action of how can we better support healthy norms for men and boys to support them and so they don't feel like they need to turn to gun violence? We're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you one last question. And it relates back to Lisa's comment at the beginning about how difficult working on this can be. And I wondered if you had any advice or words of inspiration for people who are doing this really difficult work every day to keep their community safe. I do think that it is important to acknowledge the pain and the distress of what's happening in communities and in the world, as hard as that can be. But I think it is really important to sit with that and acknowledge it. I want to give a shout out to a lot of the great people we get to work with in the cities, the Unity City Network and beyond the Unity City Network across the country and internationally that I think one of our superpowers <laughs> collectively is the ability to stay focused on what's possible, even in the presence of pain and distress. And so that ability to stay focused and to stay hopeful is what can keep us engaged in doing good work. And it's a practice. And we can make an enormous difference individually and collectively, and that is always how change is made by individuals and communities coming together to persevere, to deal with setbacks, and continue to make progress. Alicia, do you have anything you want to share? Yeah, I do. I know that for gun violence prevention, a lot of people immediately go to, okay, the thing I can do is advocate for policy change. And that's really important. And that is something that we need to do. But a lot of people working in health departments in areas where maybe they can't be directly lobbying, advocating for these things, it's important to see other things that you can be doing in your community and think about the frame that you need to use to advance your goals. For some of you, maybe talking about gun violence isn't possible where you're at right now. So think about what can you do and can you use other frames to get to the place you want to get to. If you can't say gun violence prevention, but you can say violence prevention, use that to do what you need to do and let's all work together and prevent gun violence before it happens. Well, Lisa and Alicia, thank you so much for spending this time with us. 
And thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show and to see Prevention Institute's recommendations on preventing gun violence, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. And we'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T. 